three things which helped me really honestly discover eating green and jump on board with these guys with this team. One is know what you want and articulate it for others, but more importantly for yourself. So many leaders cannot clearly articulate what they want, unashamedly articulate what they want. The second is have wise counsel and share that articulated wants list and be open to feedback of saying, Hey, is that healthy for you? Or is that not healthy for you? Because you can want something, but it'd be totally unhealthy for you. But if you've got a good friend, a spouse, a partner, a mentor, say, Hey, I heard that. I love you stating what you want. And I'm telling you, it's not healthy for you. And if you can receive that and alter that and change that and go that back and forth, I think what you'll end up with is something that very few people have, which is a goal and a vision that is healthy for you, that aligns with your strengths, aligns with your purpose. And then the next, the last thing to do is just go for it. Welcome to Create New Futures, a show about thought-provoking ideas and practices you can use to create and shape your future in life and in business. Join Aviv Shahar, author and innovation strategy consultant, as he shares his proven strategies that have helped clients create breakthrough results. Aviv has guided executives at Fortune 100 companies, and now he wants to help you. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful leaders and entrepreneurs to explore how you can create new futures for you and for your organization. This is Aviv, and today I'm speaking with Eddie Badrina, CEO of Eden Green, a vertical farming company that helps people around the world sustainably grow large amounts of food using less land, water, and energy. Eddie is a purpose-driven leader focusing on employees, inspirational organizational culture, and the communities he serves. Eddie, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Let me dive right in by asking you first, what do you enjoy most about your work? Oh, man, I would say I'm surrounded by and I'm recruiting such a talented array of individuals. It's just a joy to work with them. I know from past experience in government and then in the last business that I formed that I forgot who said it well, but culture eats strategy for lunch. That was Peter Drucker. And and here on Create New Futures, we say that we've chosen to update this idea to strategy will give you acceleration on the runway, but culture will give you lift. So without culture, you're going to crash at the end of of the runway. Absolutely. You're spot on. So that's what I enjoy the most is being able to create culture within our organization, hire and attract teammates who I want to work with and who want to work with each other. And then then transferring that to impacting culture around us. And what is the problem that Eden Green solves? You know, it's funny in our world, we're an ag company, but we're actually solving a distribution problem. And what I mean by that is we have a significant, we don't have a supply problem of greens. We have a nutritious produce. We have a distribution problem in getting it to the people who need it in a consistent and affordable manner, right? So 
in our space, we've got sort of conventional farming, right? And if you can imagine, I just gave a talk about this, but we feel good about eating salads, right? Wherever we are in the world, we feel good about eating salads. We feel good about eating greens and produce that we feel like it's, it's benefiting our body. And it is. But if I told you here in the United States that in order to get those leafy greens and that produce to your plate, it would have to come from 2000 miles away. And 90% of our lettuce is grown in California and Arizona. Literally 90% of our lettuce in the United States is grown in those two places. So to get it to Boston, New York, even Dallas, that's thousands of miles of shipping. So I tell people, hey, it may feel good, but what if I told you to travel 2000 miles, it took 100 to 110 gallons of diesel fuel spewing 2,500 pounds of carbon dioxide into the air, and that it sat in the supply chain for a more than a week. And then what if I told you, because we farm conventionally the way that we do it, 30 to 40% of that harvest actually stayed on the ground and rotted. Our industry accounts for 30 to 40% waste all along from the growth through the supply chain. I don't know of any other industry where that's considered all right, but somehow in our industry, it is. So you counted four problems you're solving, right. a distribution problem, an energy consumption problem, Absolutely. an environmental and climate oh, yeah. uh, byproduct. And then, and then there's, a, there's a worker problem too, right? Mm-hmm. So in California, we have 600,000 migrant workers going up and down the California coast, chasing the seasons, right? To harvest all this produce for $15 an hour and a dead end job. They leave their families to chase the seasons, chase the harvests solely to provide for their family. Now you tell me whether all of that cost is good for us as a whole. And my answer would be, no, it's not. So okay. that's the problem we're trying to solve. But it so, really comes down to distribution, right? So explain and describe what is vertical farming and so, yeah. what are modular uh, greenhouse systems? So an alternative to conventional farming, call it 40 acres of farming, is equal to about five acres of a greenhouse. So flat tray automated greenhouse. You see them popping up all over the place. The Dutch and the French have actually perfected the greenhouse, right? And the Israelis too, right? Y'all have done a fantastic job. So 40 acres conventional farming here in the U.S. equals about five to six acres of greenhouse farming. It's really efficient. The margins are good on those greenhouses at scale. So most of the greenhouses now are being built in 50 to 60 acre increments. I don't know about you, but here in the United States to find five acres, much less 50 to 60 acres remotely close to a population center is exorbitantly expensive. So much so that the unit level economics on a greenhouse don't work if you move it to even 50 miles, 30 miles within a population center. It just doesn't make sense, right? So then they're way out there in rural. So it doesn't solve this supply chain issue. There's still this transportation cost that is embedded in the system, right? On the other end, you've got indoor farming and the vertical farms that we've seen, right? That are making all the splash of news, huge investments in them. But the problem with those is they're 
40 acres of conventional farming is equal to about an acre and a half of those farms. But the problem is those farms to build are 300 to $350 a square foot. So the CapEx is outrageous. And then to operate those, if you ever see they're 36 feet up, a lot of these vertical farms, they're chock full of lights, 10 to 15,000 lights per module of theirs. The OPEX to run those is that of a data center. So it doesn't really solve for the ESG component. It's whitewashed, right? It's totally whitewashed. So it looks good. And they say, oh man, we can, we can grow right next to the consumer. And my question is, what's the true cost in terms of energy? And what's the cost to the consumer? And there's no way it's affordable for the average consumer. It's all high-end, fixed-price, ultra-premium goods. So you just, right? you just killed for us our excitement about vertical farming. And what is the solution then that you're going to describe to address that? So the solution, at least for a lot, not for everything. So I have friends at Plenty, right? And Plenty is focusing on berries, strawberries, and such. Those are great high margin items and their cost structure is built for that. So they're not a silver bullet and neither are we, but we think we solve a really particular problem, which is how do we get basic commodity foods, leafy greens, herbs, peppers in a way that's affordable to everyone. And the way we do it is we combine the efficiency of greenhouses with the density of vertical farms. So we... Our platform does what no one else can do. And literally it is patented. It's not patent pending. It's not, you know, provisional patent. It is an approved US patent in about six other countries as well and 12 other patent pending, but it is a US patent to grow vertically, but in a greenhouse. You combine those two strategies, Absolutely. those two technologies to create a differentiated solution. Differentiated solution. So we have the vertical farming yields, 28 to 29 pounds per square foot per year, along with the efficiencies of a greenhouse, even better efficiencies, honestly, in terms of unit economics. And you are able to solve the energy issues that you just described in terms of the light and the energy? Yeah, we use one fifteenth of the energy and the lights that a vertical farm uses. Okay, so obviously the immediate next question is, is this a technology that's commercially viable and profitable today? That is the million-dollar question, right? Actually, it's a billion-dollar question for us. So our unit level, and I shared this at a conference, most people are really tight, you know, close to the vest in terms of what they're able to do financially. One of our greenhouses growing just lettuce achieves around 60% gross margins and 30% nets. That to me is a really, really good business, right? Wow. And when you can do that next to a distribution center, then you've basically cut off probably 20 to 30% of the retail price because you've eliminated literally all of the distribution costs. I can go into sort of the logistics of it, but basically the way we're doing it eliminates distribution costs. And so what you're left with is a margin that allows you to sell greens leafy greens that in, in the US lettuce, not arugula, spinach, kale, or anything else, just lettuce is an $8 billion industry growing 10 to 15% year over year. And you can't grow arugula as well that I like so much. 
<laughs> we can absolutely. Okay. We can, but we're focusing on this market because it's so big. But when you put it next to distribution centers, people can afford it now. One, people can afford it. Two, people can access it year round. Let me just uh, get us grounded in the even bigger picture. What percentage of the planet's population suffers food insecurity and daily hunger? Just ground us in this bigger picture. And, and why do we have even food independence and sustainability issues in the 21st century? Yeah, I mean, it really goes down to, I don't know have the exact numbers on food insecurity, but it is, it's probably in the range of 30 to 40 percent of food insecure populations around the world. The reason that we have this problem is because we have, we have relied too much on the, a decent the centralized network of food supply, right? Here in the US, we call it a 3,000 mile salad. If you put all the, the, the lettuce and the tomatoes and everything else and you kind of put them all together and then you add up the mileage that it took to get there, it's about a 3,000 mile aggregate for our salad. That's not going away in terms of demand, right? The demand we have just grown used to, just like Amazon, we've gotten used to Amazon Prime. Well, we've gotten used to like getting what we want when we want it any time of the year. In, sort, in, in order to do that, suppliers have had to rush to and make it so that we can ship things in from all parts of the world to get that. So there's either two things we can do. We can lessen the demand. Good luck with that. Or we can change the supply, right? When you start to decentralize and localize food production, two things happen. One is you start to make things more accessible, right? Because they're locally grown. But two, you make them more, you make them more affordable. The problem is with that is you start to pare down your options because in a 12-month cycle in, in the season, you can't grow certain varietals. All year round. So you come upon this variety issue. And that's where greenhouse, indoor, things of that nature, like us, kind of try to solve that problem because then we can do it 12 months around the year. So are you solely really focusing on the US? I suppose another way to ask the question where on the planet will this solution make the most difference? So that's a great question. Uh, right now, when I say right now, I mean like in the next 24 months, we're really focused on the US because we're such a new technology and we're poised for growth. But like any good business, like you have to, if you get spread too thinly, you're, you're going to fail. So we want to be laser focused on certain types of greens and varietals and you know, leafy greens, herbs, and peppers. And then on our domestic market, because if we can prove it out in our domestic market, we can prove it out anywhere. So we've been in talks with folks in the Middle East. We've been talks in folks in landlocked countries. And those, they're waiting for us to get our footing really established here to be able to make expansion there much easier, right? What about India and China? <laughs> so India and China are interesting markets. They're huge, huge markets. Um, India is one of the things that we really need to, to have in place is a better sense of infrastructure because we need access we need ready water and we need ready electricity and so to go to some of these places we sort of need to make our modules our platforms a little more resilient that obviously takes time and capital and r d so there are some developing countries like india china brazil 
that we want to be able to harden, if you will, harden our, our platform before we go there so that we're not as reliant on infrastructure. The other thing that we need is rule of law. It right. is very difficult for high tech IP heavy companies in the U S to jump over to China because of, unfortunately, currently the IP rule of law is very weak. And you view your solution as, as an IP-centric solution. In What are the secrets of the trade that uh, you, can, you can talk to us about? <laughs> I mean, it's, our hardware is patented, okay. U.S. patented for design and usage. Okay. That's about as IP-centric as you're going to get, right? So obviously, there are control systems around there that are proprietary. But at the end of the day, when you have something that is patented in the U.S., you have a very valuable piece of, of IP that is just a target for folks who don't abide by rules of law. So you first want to make your success in the developed world where electricity and water and rule of law and technology is, is available. And, and after you establish that success, you will branch and, and expand to other regions where food insecurity may be even a, a broader issue, but you must have that foundational platform to enable your solution. Yeah, that is our current business strategy is to do that only because to make it a little more protected and hardened, both for infrastructure and IP, it just needs a little more work. But I will say from the get-go, the founders, the inventors of this technology are actually South African and they invented it in their garage in South Africa. So it was always meant for international and global usage. We just have to take first steps first. Let me ask you one more question on, on this frontier, and then, then we'll um, get a little more about your backstory and, and background. So who are the other key players in the, the value chain, really, that you are distributing? Who else need to come together to solve the entire value chain to enable that success? So I would say there are four major players in our in the value chain, right? The first, and I'll, I'll you know, upstream, if you will, are the farmers, right? The farmers are really the backbone of the United States and the backbone uh, of the world. You know, it, it just goes without saying: if you can't produce food, then humanity is just not going to go very far. So the farmers need to understand the rule of competitive advantages, right? We will never be able to grow wheat. We will never be able to grow like sort of woody fruiting type crops. There are things that we just can't do and we don't want to do. And so for farmers to see their competitive advantage, conventional farmers to see their competitive advantage in crops that can only be grown successfully in soil, I think is the first realization and the second realization is, along with that, the corollary is we're not a threat. Indoor farming is not a threat. Greenhouses are not a threat. We grow what we can grow really well, and we let farmers grow what they can grow really well. So that's the first step. When they're able to understand that and we can work together with them, collaboratively with them, I think you're going to see a shift in the value chain. And people will specialize in what they're really good at, depending on the ground, the environment around them, geographic location, all of that, environmental factors. The second one downstream from the farmers are, we call them the grower shippers, right? Some of them are farms in and of themselves and they contract out to smaller farms. 
but these are the bigger growers and then they ship. And the grower shippers need to understand as well that there's that diversification of their portfolio of where they're getting the produce from. And they also need to understand how better to unlock value through the conventional farmers versus us. The third one down the chain are distributors. And you can throw in co-packers in there, right? It's it's really the distributors. Distributors right now, they are working on spot contracts. They are working on because supply is so variable. And they're working on uh, they're working on short-term contracts. That's just because of what they know. I can see very soon, I would say in the next five to 10 years of these produce distributors becoming more and more used to what the energy field is already used to, which is investment grade offtake contracts. And those are where you buy, those are contracts to buy produce. As more of us get in our lanes of providing certain types of produce consistently year round, and farmers are able to specialize on a rotation of crops that you know allow them to make more margin and produce more consistently. I think what you're going to see is more long-term contracts in play. When you get those long-term contracts in play, it actually unlocks more value because you're not the volatility of that supply starts to lessen and you see some efficiencies there. How do you serve the demand for organic? I think I think that is a very complicated topic because the organic industry has done a good job of labeling organic as the only way to get nutritious greens, nutritious mm-hmm. produce, right? Organic was created as a foil, as a contrast to either GMO or heavily pesticide type. So that's a, that's both a, a branding issue. Yes. Yeah. It's totally a branding issue. Not totally. A lot of it is, is branding. A lot of it is, is valid, but the value props, if you get down to the value proposition of organic, it's healthier, Mm -hmm. right? It's, it's less pesticides. It's more nutritious and, you know, and it's safer, right? So my question is, if you can check those boxes, do you still have to be organic? And the answer is no. But organic, the organic certification in that that part of the industry does not want to concede that you can actually check those boxes without being organic. Okay. We've really given here a, a tremendous amount of detail for anybody who wants to learn about uh, <laughs> what you bring to market. Let's learn a little more about you. What is your backstory and how did you get into this space? So I am not a farmer. I well, I actually say I am a farmer now. I was not a farmer prior to me getting here. I have a background in technology. I started a company in 2010 that was focused on marketing, the marketing technology sphere, digital marketing. Prior to that, I was in government for about six years doing some international policy work and worked. I was actually President Bush's Asian American spokesperson from 04 to 06. So I've got a varied background, but how I got here was as I had sold my digital marketing company and then bought it back, which is a whole story in and of itself. But when I bought it back, I really had time to think, okay, what do I want to do next? As an entrepreneur, I'm always thinking about, okay, what's next? What's the future, right? And in that, three things came to mind over the course, I would say about a year and a half to two years. 
One is I wanted to run a hardware software company. I had been there, done that, and gotten the t-shirt for professional services, right? And even went through M&A. Second is I wanted to have an exponential multiplier on my level of effort. So for every one unit of effort that I put out, I wanted to see a 10 to 20x return on my culture and my community around me. And then the third is I wanted to run what's known as a redemptive organization. So there's an organization called Praxis Labs out of New York City, and they espouse what's known as a redemptive framework. And that is where leaders eat last. They're sacrificial by nature. Right? Tell, me so, more. Tell me more about the redemptive framework. And, yeah. and So the redemptive framework is really put in contrast with what's out there today. Most companies and organizations are exploitative. Leaders eat first. I win, you lose. Employees are treated unfairly, base minimum, you know, just, just to get by, high churn, low retention, low satisfaction. And then culture and society around that organization is a net negative. So what's taking so what are the tenets of the redemptive philosophy? So the I'll say some organizations are ethical. Ethical companies are where leaders eat alongside their employees, right? I win, you win. Employees are treated fairly. And culture and society is advanced because of those ethical organizations. And those are to be totally lauded and praised. The problem with ethical organizations is they're led by humans who tend to slide, however slightly or majorly, back into some sort of exploitative practices and postures. So you need an organization that's actually set up from the beginning or crafted or structured to give leaders parameters that are don't slide back. And that's where a redemptive organization comes in. And that's where leaders are sacrificial. So leaders eat last is the rule, right? Leaders eat last. I sacrifice, you win. It's where employees are not just treated fairly, but they're treated generously. So in our case, we provide four months of maternity leave as opposed to the usual two or three. We want to be just that extra more generous because I know I have three kids and I know what it's like to, at that third month, we had to go back to work. You just want a couple more weeks to figure that out, right? So we're like, okay, so let's do four months, right? It's just being generous. Is it, does it hurt our margin? Yeah. Is it worth it? Oh, totally, right? So, and then, and then the lastly, besides leaders eat last, employees are treated generously. Uh, the last one is where society and culture around it is not just advanced, but it's renewed, redeemed, and restored to a baseline of equality and parity and in our case, accessibility, right? So yeah. that's the, those are the tenets of a redemptive organization. Beautiful. So let's revisit a few of those milestones you, you mentioned. What were the important learnings for you in the time you spent at the U.S. Department of State and, and in, at the White House? What were the key learnings from that period? I think the key learnings, one, is I had a better sense of humanity. We are all interconnected. It sounds really broad and you know, flourishy and whatever, but the reality is we are all interconnected and there's a broader perspective that a lot of people don't have on how my actions and the actions 
of our community then affect the actions of our state, affect the actions of our country. And as in the United States, any action that the United States does has ripple effects, large and small across the world. We just live in a very momentous and and weighty time in our country's history, our country's short history, where any move that we make has profound effects on the world around us. So the, the interconnectivity, especially being centered in the United States, is very, very apparent to me. What were the important learnings as a startup entrepreneur, leader, CEO, building your own company? You said you, you sold and, and reacquired your, your company. What were the key learnings for you so far in, in this journey of, of leading an entrepreneurial startup endeavor? Probably the biggest one is that it is very hard to balance vision and enthusiasm and charisma with steadiness and and focus and sense of purpose. Uh, We have a lot of entrepreneurs out there and really unbelievable leaders or visionaries rather who have a hard time managing people, right? Because they have this vision, but they don't either communicate it well to the team behind them or they shift focuses so much that it gets everyone is caught up in the weight of their movement, right? So uh, to be able to balance strong vision with steady leadership is, I mean, it's absolutely the biggest challenge with leaders today. In the Create New Futures philosophy and and way of working, we say that um, you want to bring to the long term the enthusiasm and, and the energy of, of the near term, and you want to bring to the near term the kind of purposeful intent that you bring to the long term, such that the what we often describe as the horizon one and the horizon three, they're well tethered and aligned to each other, and that we balance these long-term and near-term considerations in the way we build our strategy, in the way we engage our teams. And the the proof of it is when everybody shows up every morning and they know what they do today and they have a clear line of sight how their daily efforts and weekly efforts produce that long-term vision. That is the proof of that idea. Yeah, absolutely. I actually was texting with a friend probably right before I jumped on here and, uh, And I basically told them, I am impatient in the short term and patient in the long term, right? So I have a bias towards action in the short term, things that I can, and my team can accomplish, just go, go, go. But I am very patient when it comes to long-term goals. But if I see progress and momentum every single day, even just a little bit, I know I'll get I'll, I know I can be patient with those long-term goals and as a leader as an entrepreneur as a leader of men and women who are encouraging them to do that everyday hard work slogging you know the the grind you have to be able to jump between those two long-term patience and short-term impatience and that that's just a gift of a leader what is the formative experience that that shaped this philosophy and, and uh, passion that you bring to leadership and to a redemptive organization. Can you trace a moment in time, something happens, somebody that influenced you? What is that moment when you are awakened to this ethos in, in your own thinking? 
I don't know if there's any one moment. It's about it's it's like compound interest, right? It's just brick by brick that start just builds upon itself. I can identify key moments or key people. One is my parents. So my parents immigrated from the Philippines in 1969. My mom had about $70 in her pocket and my dad had about 110. Not a lot. This is back in 69. And so that to me what that spoke was and I learned I reflected on it later on in life, but it really put in me a high tolerance for risk. Because if you take an immigrant story and you look at their safety net moving, you know, thousands of miles away from their family, going from developing country to developed country and just starting from scratch, their risk profile is the highest risk profile you will ever see. Right. So for me, being born and growing up, growing up in the United States, I looked around and said, well, gosh, everyone's afraid of taking risk, but what's the downside? Right. I tell this to entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs all the time, especially those with young kids. Like, okay, what's the downside? And they think about it like, man, I would have to sell my house. I'd probably have to go live with my parents. Like, my wife and my kid, or my husband and my kid would have to go live with my parents. It's like, well, great. So that puts you in the 99% of the world, right? Because I know for a fact, my family, we have four generations in the Philippines living under one roof. So basically what you're telling me, young entrepreneur, is your safety net is the rest of the world's normal. When you put it in that perspective, there's no risk, virtually no risk. Your safety net's a a foot from the ground, right? Perspective is everything. Perspective is everything, right? You simply carry that perspective of your lineage. Yeah. So that's probably one. The second one is probably President Bush Sr. I learned from him just compassion Mm. with vision. He had this unbelievable, not just ability, but a heart to know everyone around him in the white house. And I learned this later on in the white house, both he and his son W who I worked for as well. They knew everyone's name and their families in the white house, white house mess, lowly assistants. Like they just knew them to me. That was very telling policy aside. I don't care if you agree or disagree with policy, their character rose above their policy. And that to me was very, very instrumental. My three exit uh, questions. With all that you know today, what advice would you give your 25-year-old self? Give yourself some grace. I'm so performance-driven. I think I could have benefited from, hey, just stop. Stop for a second, right? Stop, assess, take a break, and then go at it again. I ran so hard in my 20s and 30s. I I, I think I would just say, hey, slow down and give yourself some grace. Beautiful. If you were to lose all that you know and keep only two ideas or two capabilities or two practices, what would you keep? They're complementary. One is the idea that I am loved. Full stop. My identity is not in what I do. My identity is not even like who I know, my friend. It's just that I am loved by the God of the universe. That is in and of itself enough. The second piece I would say is have something that reminds me of that every day. Yes. Yes. Eddie, as we bring this to lending, what parting wisdom and message do you want to offer to people listening to create new futures? I would say three things which helped me really honestly discover eating green and jump on board with these guys. 
with this team. One is know what you want and articulate it for others, but more importantly for yourself. So many leaders cannot clearly articulate what they want, unashamedly articulate what they want. The second is have wise counsel and share that articulated wants list and be open to feedback of saying, hey, is that healthy for you or is that not healthy for you? Because you can want something, but it'd be totally unhealthy for you. But if you've got a good friend, a spouse, a partner, a mentor, say, hey, I heard that. I love you stating what you want and I'm telling you it's not healthy for you. And if you can receive that and alter that and change that and go that back and forth, I think what you'll end up with is something that very few people have, which is a goal and a vision that is healthy for you, that aligns with your strengths, aligns with your purpose. And then the next, the last thing to do is just go for it. Thank you. So uh, know what you want and communicate it. Be open for feedback and new learning. Go for what you believe in and never forget to remember you're operating in a loving, compassionate universe and you're not alone. Absolutely. Thank you. So. Summary. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Aviv always encourages his clients to identify the one or two ideas they can move forward into action immediately. What will you capture and apply today? You can always begin with a small action and then build momentum over time. When you move forward from an idea to action, you get immediate ROI, return on the time you invested, and return of learning. And then the learning cycle builds the success propulsion. One more thing. You can reach Aviv directly by phone and email to discover how he can help you create a new future for your business and organization. Creating your new future can begin today. Today.